It's a lot of fun, isn't it? Right? And you never know what's going on in the back of somebody's mind. Welcome to the Coleman Catacombs. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Robin. And once again, we are back to Rattle the Skeletons in Roger Corman's cinematic closet. Now, this one, obviously, like, if you read the title, you know that this is one that seems a lot more mainstream at the surface. Right. I've heard of this film. I've seen, like, the bazillion fucking sequels to it. Well, I haven't seen the sequels, but I know that there's... Or am I thinking of a different franchise? Okay, so here's the thing. So the Fast and Furious franchise that we know of, the one that's all about family, um, it's it's related, but it's not like a direct sequel or a remake. It's actually a licensing thing. So the Fast and Furious movie that Roger Corman made, you know, came out in 1954, did well enough. In fact, he was able to use it to get a three-picture deal with American International Pictures, which at the time was a new company. And so Fast and Furious was the first movie in that three-movie deal. And it went over so well that Corman kept working for it with International American Pictures for the next 15 years, which amounted to over 30 movies. Whoa! Okay, so this is a huge, important film in his career. Like, in terms of, you know, really getting the ball rolling as far as, like, because, you know, once the ball gets rolling, it just keeps going down that hill. That very, very tall filmography of a hill. But as far as the licensing is concerned, how the heck did a not-1954 movie get that title? There's two versions of the story. We've got the story told by Neil H. Moritz, who is the Fast and Furious producer. And according to him, so, you know, travel back to 2001 when they're first, you know, like making this new movie with, you know, Chris Walker and Cars. And so according to him, they were kind of rolling around some proposed titles, including Racer X, Redline, Street Wars, and Race Wars. Really glad. Race Wars! Yeah, yeah, I'm glad they didn't go with that last one. But according to Moritz, he was inspired by an American International Pictures documentary that mentioned The Fast and the Furious, at which point he approached Corman and licensed it that way. Now, Corman tells a slightly different version of it. According to Roger Corman, Moritz's dad, who was a former American International Pictures executive, suggested it when he was like, oh, son, you're having a hard time picking a name? Oh, here's here's one from my old glory days, you know, whatever. But either way, as far as what Corman got out of the deal, you know, like after he, he licensed it, he got some stock footage from Universal and he maintained the right to numerical sequels. So if you've ever wondered why the Fast and the Furious franchise, the naming conventions is so freaking weird, it's because they can't just make a Fast and Furious 2. Corman's been sitting on those rights for years. So you can thank Corman for the fact that instead of it just being, oh, Fast and the Furious 1, 2, 3, 4, etc., it's the Fast and the Furious 2. Too Fast, Too Furious with the numbers twos, but not Fast and Furious 2. No, it has to be Too Fast, Too Furious. Then you have Fast and Furious, Tokyo Drift, Fast Ampersand Furious, Fast Five. Now six, they got tricky with it. So they use the ampersand again instead of the the word and A-N-D because the original license title is The Fast and the Furious, A-N-D, but not ampersand. So they got around the numerical thing for number six by being... Fast Ampersand Furious 6. And then you got Furious 7, Fate of the Furious, which it took me the longest time to realize, oh, they probably call it Fate because F plus 8, Fate. Yeah. And then F9, Fast and Furious X, not 10, X, because numerical again, and also Hobbs and Shaw on the side, but you know. Wow, that is some crazy loopholes just to get around not giving Corman... His dues. <laughs> I mean, he hasn't seemed to complain, and I mean, it's not like he's done anything with the numerical rights. Okay. I mean, maybe, you know, by the time we drop this, maybe he'll announce it's like, hey guys, I'm finally making Fast and Furious 2. I doubt it. But if he did, that'd be very funny. That would be hilarious. But as far as, like, the 1954 film, which again, aside from being about people driving fast cars, no relation other than the title to the Universal film franchise. Guess what Corman managed to do once again? I'll give you a hint. It involved another him rolling a charisma check to get some free vehicles. No fucking way! Yeah, so basically he was able to get Jaguar racing cars for free for the use of the film because they shot the racing scenes at the Monterey racetrack, which is where the Jaguar open sports car races happened. 
And he got him for free. Again, because that whole, oh, well, we're promoting you. We're doing you a favor. God damn it. How does this man keep doing it? Again, he keeps rolling good charisma checks. As far as, like, you know, the other people that are involved, other than, of course, Corman, which... As far as his role in this film is concerned, he contributed the story, but once again, you know, the script was the script itself was hammered out by other people, specifically Jerome Oldlum, who was one of the Highway Dragnet screenwriters. No shit. And Jean Howell, who's actually a woman, so maybe we'll get a better maybe we'll get a better romance this time. Yes, fingers crossed. Please don't give me that woman. I like you. End of story. Bullshit. Please. <laughs> And Corman was also the second unit director and he did some stunt driving. And apparently he is a fan of car races. So like when he was doing some of the stunt driving, there was like one scene that they had to like film more than once because they could have gotten it on like the first try, but he got so excited and he was like, I'm going to win the race. And it's like, no, you were, you were stunt driving for the car. That's not supposed to win the race. Roger, we got to do it again. You got overexcited. Oh, that's so cute. Now, as far as who the like full on, you know, first unit directors were, it was actually two. So the main director was Edward Sampson, who was primarily a film editor. And then the other guy was actually the lead actor in the movie, John Ireland. Because John Ireland was more of an established actor compared to, you know, the kind of actors that Roger Corbett was dealing with previously. But basically he was able to get John Ireland to agree to work at a lower rate than normal by getting the co-director gig. John Ireland wanted to be, like, wanted a chance at the director's seat. Nice. And actually it was this experience like seeing John Ireland, you know, having fun directing and then also him enjoying the second unit directing he did that prompted Roger to be, you know, like a full director for the next film. But first we got to tackle this. Once again, pretty short shoot. It was a nine day shoot with a $50,000 budget. And something to keep in mind, and I guess like, you know, for going forward, because I found this quote from Roger Corman directly in relation to like the plot of this film and also the plot of some of his other films. It's like quoting directly from Roger Corman. I was attracted to stories about outcasts, misfits, or antiheroes on the run or on the fringe of society. That theme would recur time and time again throughout my directing career, which I guess in a way, like, you know, granted, we've only, you know, dipped our toes in. But I feel like that applies to Gunfighter. That applies to Highway Dragnet. That even kind of applies to Monster on the Ocean Floor if you count the main lady from that as being kind of an outsider in the sense that, you know, she's not a scientist. She's not an expert. She's just like a tourist who, you know, decided to take it upon herself to do some monster hunting. But hey, she did a lot of the legwork into investigating this thing. So more power to her. More power to faint at the sight of cows. <laughs> Maybe she was the first vegan. Oh, God. <laughs> but getting back to Fast and Furious, of course, we must look at Zipposta. So once again, we'll post the picture of the poster on our social medias. But so it's got our leading man holding our leading lady in the top corner and then on the bottom. Once again, a car breaking through some sort of wooden barrier. Or breaking through a barrier. I don't Break, remember if the first barrier for Dragnet was a wooden barrier. If it was if, if it was a police barricade back then, those would have all been wooden barriers. I'm sure some of them are plastic now, but like I think back then they would have all been wood. I have no clue what old timey barricades are made out of. I just, I would Probably assume, wood. I assume concrete. I'm not talking about the kind of barricades that they have up in parking lots to make it where like you can't. I'm not talking about permanent barricades. I'm talking about the temporary ones where they're like, oh, well, we need to temporarily block traffic. Right. So those would have to be wood because otherwise you're asking people to like haul in concrete for like for it to sit there for only a day. But like, so it's a. So it's a racing car smashing through a wooden barricade. And as far as the tagline is concerned, a wanton man meets a wanting woman. Roger Corman presents John Ireland, Dorothy Malone, The Fast and the Furious, Widescreen Thrills, filmed at the Pebble Beach International Sports Car Races. And there's a little helmet. God damn it, red flag! Meets a woman wanting. Also, why is other why is that lady just standing there oh. on the side next to the car crashing through the barrier? Um, because I was about to say, oh hey, this poster isn't as tittylicious. Like, yeah, what what's the old artist trick? You draw them naked first, and then you just draw the clothes on top. Yeah, 
she's not even dressed in the way that like, because you know how like a lot of times at, you know, car races the in movies, they'll have the gal that's like, gentlemen, start your engines. And she'll like have the little flag or have the little gun. She's not even dressed like that and doesn't even have like a little flag or a gun. So I don't know if that's supposed to be another picture of like just Dorothy Malone. It's like, in case you needed to know what her legs looked like before you go to see the movie. And her knees and her ankles. Oh boy. Oh my. I'm very curious if this, like, you know, if this guy's circumstances for being on the run, and by on the run we mean in a car, is going to be similar to Highway Dragnet, because once again, you know, there is a law enforcement officer trying to pack heat against a red car, so... We're gonna find out! So, we'll be back with our thoughts on The Fast and the Furious. So we just watched The Fast and the Furious. Oh my god! He did it again! (laughs) Okay, like, in fairness, I wonder if, like, there's a little bit of overlap with Highway Dragnet in the form of Jerome Odlum. But, like, and in some ways, I feel like the addition of a woman screenwriter improved some things... But not enough. Oh my god. Because I was getting highway dragnet flashbacks. No, 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 no. I now feel bad for how hard I went on highway dragnet. Don't get me wrong. It still has its flaws. But it's like, like I said, in some ways it did like a couple things better than highway dragnet. But then everything else it did worse. (laughs) But I guess first let's get our ducks in a row as far as... What the heck happened in this freaking movie? So, we start off with a woman pulling up to the Saddle Peak Lodge, and... It's a cafe. The lady is parking her car, and a guy, who we later learn his name is Bob Nielsen. And he straight up looks like, um... I mean, I know there's a lot of quote-unquote incel pictures floating around on the internet, but if you've seen the one where it's, like, the big guy with the fucking fedora, like, I think it's the one that Sideways sometimes uses as, like, a fake, like profile pic for some of his videos. That's what this guy looks like the ancestor of. He looks like the original incel. Oh my gosh, I have no clue what picture you're talking about. It's like he looks kind of like that or he also looks like the that one picture of like the God, I wish that were me guy. I still have no clue what you're talking about. So after that, he tries to open the car door for her and he's all, ooh, how are you? And she's like, uh, do I know you? Yeah, because he's all like, oh, nice car, nice driver, too. Like, he's, like, flirting from minute one. Like, doesn't even know her name yet. And she even asks for his, and he gets all pissy. It's like, gee, I was just trying to be nice to you. Oh, God, fucking bitch. Like, what a fucking little... Uh, what's the word I want to use? Words. Incel. He is grade A incel. Little bitch about it. <laughs> And so, like, they both end up going into the cafe. And, you know, again, as soon as he realizes that she's not interested in him, he doesn't have any, like, nice things to say about the car anymore because he ends up being like, oh, you know, like, she orders pineapple juice and an egg salad sandwich while the diner lady is going in the back looking for the pineapple juice. He's all like, oh, you're on that jalopy on pineapple juice. (laughs) And it's like, we get it, dude. You're mad your dick's not going to get wet. (laughs) So this is another case where the diner lady is just chewing on the scenery. What is it? I do like her. It's like, I'm sad we don't see more of her. Like, again, I feel like I'm crediting that to Jerome Odlum because that was also a thing at Highway Drag that he loves quirky diner ladies and i can and i can respect that so she goes back into the back looking for the pineapple juice while and there's three people currently at the diner little desk area because it's it's bob it's the main woman who we don't find out until like i think it was like 15 minutes in that her name is connie connie adair and another man who's acting a little more cagey. He's not really engaging in the gossip when, like, Wilma comes back and is all like, oh, did you hear there's a guy on the loose escaped from jail? He, like, ran some other dude off the road. Ooh, scandalous. Ooh, what kind of prison do they have over there? It's in Coachella, which I don't know anything about, like, Coachella outside of nowadays. I think there's some sort of concert that happens there, but... I don't know anything about Coachella either, but... Must not be very tight security because they don't even, we do not see 
or hear about how he escapes from prison. He just does. Well, it's from jail. Because, like, prison is when, like, they actually put you in the orange jumpsuit, you know, and you're in, like you know, more heavy duty fencing versus jail. Like that could just mean the local town jail. I thought they said prison. No, well, they may have said it interchangeably, but I think based off of, um, so we end up finding out that he stole another guy's ID and he said that that guy was the town drunk. So again, I feel like that's implying it's a jail because like you don't put the local, you don't put the town drunks in prison prison. You put them in like the local jail cell to sober up, like- Right. And so they're trying to gossip. He's asking Cagey because he's just like, can I have my freaking food? It's like, and... Oh, no. He's like, you want to take my money? Yeah, sure. And then... Oh, because he already ate, presumably. Right. So that's when she goes in the back to keep looking for the pineapple juice. Well, Wilma does, the diner lady. And that's when Bob and this mysterious man start talking. Bob's like, I didn't see your car out there. You hitchhiking? Nope. I'm walking. Want to give you a lift? No. Why not? Yeah, like, where are you walking from? It's like, oh, you walking from the same place where that guy escaped from jail? And then he goes full, like, trying to go citizen's arrest on him, like, pulling a gun on him and being like, I want to see your ID. But he ends up pulling that racist cop routine of asking for identification. But then when the guy actually reaches into a pocket, presumably for his identification, he assumes that he's reaching for a weapon and is all like, oh, no, you don't. And then there's, I thought like, it was more altercation. Like the mystery man declined showing off the ID. He's like, I didn't ask for a lift. And then he starts to walk away and that's when Bob pulls out the gun. But he's still like, I want to see that damn ID. And again, he reaches for his pocket and, you know, before, like, we find out later that he does have a fake ID. Because at this point, we don't know that. So, but later we do find out that he does have a fake ID. Or it's not a fake ID. It's a real ID, but it's not his. He stole it off of a drunk in the in the jail cell that he was in before he escaped so i wonder if that's what he was supposed to be reaching for but again this incel guy was just wanting to feel like a badass and it's like oh i'm gonna get into a tussle but then he instantly gets his ass kicked knocks out gets knocked out on the floor and that's when mystery man grabs connie and kidnaps her because he has a little gun of his own or did he take the gun from bob either way i didn't notice i can't remember either way he's got a gun so he takes connie hostage they drive off in her car which is a Jaguar, by the way. That's the only car that I'm going to be able to identify because they name drop it in the movie. Like, neither of us are car people. Yeah, I'm not a car person. I mean, it looks nice for like an old timey sports car, I guess. Like, doesn't have a back seat though, so. And that's when Wilma comes back from the back and she's like, oh no! There's oh! been a murder! Like, she sees a guy unconscious and automatically assumes he's dead. She calls the cops and... They come over and Wilma didn't see the car, but because Bob, you know, being an angry incel was like, oh, what does that car run on? You know, like that jalopy run on. She's like, oh, and they and they were driving a jalopy, which is not, okay, I had to look this up because I always assumed that jalopy was just an old timey term for a car in general, but they were treating it like it was a specific description because they were like, okay, Frank Webster, that's the name of the escapee, although he was using the pseudonym Bill Myers when Nielsen was interrogating him. It's like, oh, Frank Webster, he's with a woman, and they're driving an old car. And it's like, old car? And so then I had to look up specifically what a jalopy is. Because again, I've only ever heard it like when people are using old-timey speech to talk about cars, so I just thought it was an old-timey tiny, old timey term for a regular car. But no, it specifically means like an older run-down car. The etymology, at least according to Wiktionary, is unknown, but it's possibly derived from Jalapa, Mexico, which is where used cars used to be sent from New Orleans to in order to become scrapped. So the more you know. Dun, 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 dun. So that's initially what throws the cops off the scent, is that they're looking for Frank and Connie in an old beat-up car instead of a nice sports car. Right. Because Bob's still unconscious when the cops show up, and they're like, okay, he's not dead, he's just been knocked out. And they do end up taking him to the hospital, which they did not film that in the hospital. It looks like the only thing they did to make that room look like it was a hospital room is that they put up the little like privacy screen thing. They got a lady in a nurse outfit, but then that bed does not look like a hospital bed. The blanket does not look like a hospital blanket. It, it looks like a nice grandma grandma sewn quilted blanket. He's got like a nice headboard and footboard. That thing's nicer than the bed that the grandpa's in at the start of Stardew Valley. <laughs> Oh my god. So we go back to Frank and Connie. They're bantering back and forth. She's like, oh no, what are you going to do with me? Please let me go. 
and stuff like that. And he makes this comment, I like my women quiet. And it's like, oh God. And this is just how it is. Okay, admittedly, like compared to the love interest from Highway Dragnet, she at least talks back more, which I appreciate. And there are moments where she tries to escape, but then she still ends up falling for him when he does like, again, I'm sorry for like, as don't get me wrong, Highway Dragnet still had his issues. It's like Jerome Odlum without like, cause there were like, I want to say four or five screenwriters on Highway Dragnet. So they seem to water down, you know, like, oh, just how rugged this, you know, main dude's supposed to be versus here where, like, it feels like Jerome tried as hard as he could to make Frank this, like, you know, macho guy, but in a very 1950s macho way, which, you know, didn't necessarily age well. And then Jean, the lady, the lady screenwriter, you know, again, she tries to give Connie some more agency, but it's still hampered by the fact that this is a 1950s movie and it's only, and there's only so far that you could go with that. Like, she does try to escape a couple times. Like, at one point they have to stop for gas and she goes to the bathroom and tries to climb out of a window, like, Which, in the restaurant. Which, good on her, because she's doing, she's, I'm assuming she's standing on this toilet while wearing heels. That cannot have been easy. Oh my gosh. But Frank spots her and is all like, oh, going somewhere? And so then she has to get back into the car. And also, you can tell that, like, you know, cars are a lot different nowadays because, like, the gas station attendant it has to have the key in order to unlock the back to pop open the gas hole. The gas hole? <laughs> you know what I mean. Right. I was ex- The place where the pump goes. <laughs> Just because I drive a car every day doesn't mean I know that much about its anatomy. I don't know what the exact terminology is, so gas hole it is. <laughs> I'm going to have to use that now. <laughs> And, and, act, and like I said, we don't find out until like 15 to 20 minutes in that her name even is Connie because eventually Frank like opens up her like, I guess, registration information when he's like popping open the glove box and is all like, oh, Connie Adair, huh? And it's like weird thing to introduce so late, but whatever. Right. I would have expected her. I would have liked it if they would have established her name sooner. Like, I get why she didn't want to give it to Bob, but it was just weird that he didn't try to, like, find out her name sooner to be all like, you know, oh, you know, you're going to be my hostage for the foreseeable future, so let's get to know each other or something. But, like, another way that she tries to escape is at one point there's a motorcycle cop that tries to pull them over, and she ends up throwing away. So, again, old-timey cars apparently were very different because there's a separate door key and ignition key. And so... When Frank has no choice but to pull over for the motorcycle cop, she throws away the ignition key. She makes the car stop by pulling it out mid-drive. She tosses it out. To make him, to force it to pull over. Because he was trying to drive away, like trying to he run was, away. Yeah, he was trying to run away from this cop, which it's like, bruh, how did you expect this to play out? Well, because they even say that like, oh, the, it, very similar to Highway Dragnet, where initially they don't have a picture of him out and a, available for people to utilize for the manhunt. There's only the description of him. And apparently the description's not that accurate. It's not very good. Or it's probably just because he's a generic looking white guy. So like, and there's a lot of generic looking white guys driving around. <laughs> <laughs> and the cop pulls him over. He's like, oh, hey, I thought you were trying to run away from me. Ha ha, I only came here to tell you that your taillight's out. Otherwise, have a great day. Like, it was giving very much, it's almost the end of my shift, so I feel obligated to give you a talk, but I want to get the fuck home. So I'm not even going to wait for you to respond. Just going to be like, hello, citizen, taillight's out. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> so like they lucked out but then he's like pissed off that she threw the ignition key so then they have to like kind of crawl around or he makes her crawl around on the ground for a little looking for the ignition key and she's like i'm not looking for it he is getting so fed up with her shit which valid thing to do which kudos to her for having the cojones to stand up to this guy with a gun yeah, because, like, at one point he's like, because it's starting to get dark, which is another reason why he's frustrated that they can't find the ignition key. So he's like, oh, you got a match so we can, like, look around better. And she pulls out about a, a little, uh, what's the word? Box of matches. What's it called when it's not a box, but it's the little paper foldy thing? A pack? A pack of matches. You know, when it's not the little slidey box that mice can use as beds in cartoons, but when it's, like, the little, like, the I kind of hotels. I thought it was a box. Whatever. Anywho, though... The, she, pu she, she pulls it out just to throw it. She yeets that shit. <laughs> she is determined to slow down and interfere with Frank's plan. 
And so then he ends up having to hotwire it. And it's only after he hotwires it that she pulls out a spare ignition key. And she's like, well, you didn't ask me if I had one. (laughs) You cheeky bitch. (laughs) Yeah, so I like that. And if they had written Frank better, I feel like, you know, that would have been a nice back and forth. But he just gets so aggro because then like they basically decide they're going to just like stay pulled over and sleep in the car overnight. And he takes his belt and uses it to like tie it or her wrist around his so that she can't run off when he's asleep. And she's like, do we really have to do this? And he's like, you're the most pitiful creature I've ever known. And she slaps him and he forces a kiss on her. Ah! Yay! Assault. God damn it, movie! Why? Because it's the 1950s and the co-director slash lead star wasn't that good to women IRL. What? Okay. Is I, that based off of just what we saw in the movie? No, or is I, that based- I, learned, I learned some tidbits about John Ireland. Like, I didn't want to say them before the movie because I didn't want to color our perception going in because unfortunately there's plenty of people in Hollywood that despite how, you know, bad of a person they may be IRL, they're still like good, you know, like actors or they're talented in other ways so I didn't want to color this perception going into the movie but like as the quote-unquote love story keeps going on it was hard for me not to think of like a couple of the things that I read about John Ireland the lead actor and remember he got the co-directing gig as well because that's why he took a lower rate so for fun fact uh he dated a 16 year old when he was 45 And then there's a different woman that, and then there's a different woman that he was married to. And at one point she showed up to the hospital with a black eye. And of course she gave the typical, oh, it was an accident excuse. But basically everyone at the time, you know, was in agreement. No, John did that to her. Fuck you, John Ireland. Holy shit. God Damn it, 1950s. Like, again, I feel bad for how much I was bitching in Highway Dragnet, because don't get me wrong, I still feel like the guy in Highway Dragnet, like, is not that great of a love interest. But at least, aside from keeping them hostage, like, he's not as aggro as as Frank is. Yeah, like... He didn't, he didn't assault the main girl. You know, say what you will about how he was, you know, like, being too, you know, menacing in terms of, like, oh, hey, both of you women don't run away from me. Like, this gun could go off. But at least he didn't try to ass- sexually assault either of them. Yeah, not forcing any kisses and not threatening to break their arms and shit. Oh yeah, because later on, because like she does do in one of her attempts to escape, which is literally just her trying to run off, he like catches up with her and is all like, oh, if you try that again, I'll break your arm. And it's like, what a compelling love story. (laughs) What is with these contrived, horrible romances? 1950s. So, ah, my God, how, oh my God, is every, how many more movies are going to be like this? Okay, I hope not all of them are going to be to this level. Because again, Highway Dragnet wasn't to this level. Monster from the Ocean Floor wasn't to this level. Right. Like, I'll take, you know, oh, we barely know each other, but now we're suddenly in love over, you're clearly an asshole, but something, something, I'm still in love with you, even though you assaulted me and you keep threatening to hurt me. And like, again, it's like, yeah, the Highway Dragnet guy made some threats, but my gosh, if like, when Frank does it, if it doesn't feel less like an act and more like he's just legitimately that kind of a brute. So after- Oh, we forgot to mention the opening shot of the film before we meet Connie at the diner is a truck explosion. It's easy to overlook because initially you just think it's set dressing. Like it's two trucks and one of them goes off the side of the road and explodes. And then we have the title card. But that's when we learn that Frank is accused of running a truck driver off the road. Right. So that was kind of like... That was supposed basically a prologue, even if we didn't realize it initially, because right after they do the explosion, then it's like the title, and then the opening credits over generic racing footage. Right. So... And we don't... We find out there's a bit more to that truck explosion, but not until later. For now, you know, they're still on the run. After they... Fall asleep. We we go back to a shop of Bob Nelson and the doctor and the nurse and the cops trying to wake up and trying to talk to Bob. And he's going in and out of consciousness and he's able to say, Jag. 
Jag. And then he passes out again. And so they're like, okay, Jag, Jag must mean Jaguar. And there actually is a race that's going to happen soon. And we end up finding out that that's Frank's plan to basically get out of Dodge because the race is at the border. And so after the race, he's going to cross the border into Mexico and flee the law. Before that, though, I will admit one of the things that I thought was interesting was that, so this, they wake up and so apparently he washed his face or something and he tells Connie to wash her face. And during which we get a little snippet of the radio playing. It's talking about Frank, talking about the manhunt, and they're about to leave. Oh, wait, no, before they start leaving, he makes this comment. It's like, oh, one time a rattlesnake bit me and it died, except... I did the biting of the rattlesnake because I'm so cool. Or no, I don't, I don't think that's how he described it. He was basically like, so when he comes from quote unquote washing his face, which I don't know how the hell he washed his face unless he just like- Found like some Like a puddle. Like, like puddle? He, just, he just gave himself a free mud facial, I guess. Yeah, right? Or I wonder if that was their euphemism for he went off behind the bushes to pee. Because I don't know what other like activities you're going to do on the side of the road in relation to- like powdering your nose other than legitimately, oh, go behind the bush. Pee. Oh, that was a euphemism. I, that's what I'm assuming. Okay, it's that not makes even like we way see, more sense. Because it's not even like we see him find a water source. But yeah, as he's coming back to the car, he's like, oh, you know, this, this terrain reminds me of the time that I was bitten by a rattlesnake, five years old. Me, not the rattlesnake, that is. And it died. <laughs> and so so you're telling me that the Chuck Norris meme predates Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris is stealing from Frank Webster. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, and then that's when we go to a couple of cops. They're still on the search for Frank. And one of the cops is like, ah, oh, we've already checked this road once. That's good enough for me. And Frank and Connie... They see the two cops and they're like, okay, we're going to coast to go around Yeah, because they're basically like up on a hill. Like the way that the road kind of curves and forks, they're kind of up on a hill and that's where they see the motorcycle cops. And so they're like, we can get around them, but they have to coast to do it because otherwise the engine noise is going to give them away. And that was interesting seeing like, because in these sorts of like, you know, action car racing movies, you don't get a lot of opportunities for cars to be like kind of quiet and sneaky. Right. So that so was so that, that was, was kind of cool. Yeah, that was a nice sequence. It was. It made me think of. And granted, it was completely different circumstances. It made me think of the episode of The Office when Andy sneaks up on Dwight with the Prius. That's the only other time I could think of where a car is sneaky. <laughs> but yeah, so they sneaky car, sneaky car. So they slip, they coast through the power of coasting. They sneak away past the cops and then go towards the. The racing arena, which like they, they, it's they, like there another is, checkpoint. And there is there yeah, because the cops know now that they know that their perp may be in a sports car. They like set up a checkpoint at the area where all of the race car drivers are like having to pull in to like enter the park where the race is gonna be. And it's like there's a police checkpoint, and like they're able to skirt by because he's all like, "Yep, I'm gonna drive in the race. My name's Bill Myers." Do 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 do. And I think he was hoping that like once they got past that checkpoint they'd be rid of the cops for a little bit. But then one of them, a motorcycle cop does kind of trail all the race cars. It's like, oh, let's escort you to the park. And so Connie kind of gets a kick out of that. It's like, oh, Mr. Myers, aren't you excited about the big race? Oh, when did we meet Mr. Myers? Where, where we go? Where did we start from? I'm going to miss you so much. <laughs> I do like Connie. Connie's like the best part of this movie. Which is why I hate that it's like she deserves so much better. Agreed. Especially because, uh, remember, keep in mind, this is her car. And a uh, fun fact, she has racing experience because when they get there, initially, it's not going to be Frank that's going to be driving the race. It's going to be Connie because he doesn't have racing experience. He's got driving experience, not though with sports cars. And since it's her car, she's initially gonna drive the race only for like the guy who's at like the sign-up desk to tell him it's like oh didn't you hear there was a meeting last night the course has been determined to be too dangerous so they're not going to allow any lady drivers in this race and we just both looked at each other like are you fucking serious and it's <laughs> oh being discriminatory under the guise of women's safety in sports haven't heard that before 
cough, cough, yes, I have. It's just nowadays it's about trans people. Yeah. Oh, God. And you know what it also no. made, you know what it was also reminding me of? It was because, again, canonically, Connie's the one with the sports car driving experience. She knows, like, other racers that are already going to be participating in the race because they end up bumping into a, like, a friend of hers named Faber, who's kind of like the romantic rival to Frank, because Faber's all like Faber's all like, "Oh, Connie, good to see you. Oh, sorry about the whole, you know, them being sexist. You know, like a lot of the women drivers here are the fastest ones on the scene." Da 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 da. But again, the fact that Connie is canonically, you know, the one who's more competent, but then doesn't get as much to do. It's giving me shades of how, like, some people have pointed out that in the first Transformers movie, like, theoretically, based off of how they turn Megan Fox's character into the one that had the car knowledge, like, she's the one that pops open the hood on Bumblebee. Right. And stuff that, like, there's an alternate universe where she would have been a better protagonist. The only reason why she's not is because she's the love interest and they only give her the car knowledge to make her, quote, not like other girls. Make her extra sexy. Yeah, ooh, she's a sexy lady that knows about cars. You're able to talk, you're able to talk about her with cars, you know, like something that guys are into. And, like, because the only reason why, because the only, because the only reason why Sam Witwicky has, like, protagonist status is just because he's got the MacGuffin glasses from his grandpa. Big fucking whoop. Like, he doesn't even know that much about cars. So, back to the movie. Yeah, sorry. Like, so Frank has to be the one to drive the car. He has to be the one to enter the race, again, under the Bill Myers name, and that's where we find out that yes, he does have a fake ID, which he got from the drunk, and Connie's allowed to ride with him during, like, the qualifying run, where, like, he proves that he's, you know, like, fast enough and good enough at driving to be a part of the race, but she can't drive with him in the main race the next day which she's coaching him on how to drive oh hey go into lower gear don't lose rpms you know put the gas on these turns and he's picking it up pretty well and he mentions that i've driven everything from hot rods to tanks wouldn't a hot rod be a sports car or is that a or is that like a muscle car i don't know muscle cars counted as sports cars i don't thought i didn't think he said hot rods i thought he said like he said something else to tanks but he's driven everything from from like cars to tanks but he just hasn't driven a sports car before like they end up establishing there's kind of this class divide where like he doesn't have the money for a sports car even though he's got the driving skills from like the other types of vehicles he's done like they and that's another thing that they kind of to contrast him with Faber in this like love triangle it's almost giving except not executed as well it's almost giving like in Titanic you know how Rose has you know like Billy Zane and Jack to choose from it's like oh well you've got the snobby asshole or like the good working class boy good working class boy Except, you know, that uh, commentary goes better when you don't have the working class boy be a fucking asshole. Right. Because, you know. Because Faber seems initially more respectful of her. He's not respectful towards Frank, but granted. That's kind of warranted after everything we've seen up to this point. (laughs) So after that, they finish the qualifying race. He finishes, he has the second best time of the racers. So he's second to last. In the startup. So after that, they end up going to, because, you know, where the heck are they going to stay? They're trying to, like, steer clear of other people. And so she's like, oh, there's this abandoned house we could, like, squat at. And he finally freaking feeds her because she missed her, she missed her sandwich at the diner. And then, and then later, earlier, <laughs> like, when she was talking to the registration guy, I didn't hear it on the movie, but the registration guy reacts like, oh, hey, are you hungry, miss? And that's when Frank is like, oh, she's always hungry. She doesn't need like, to eat. Well, oh well because it, it's rule of threes. Because first she forgets that she doesn't get her sandwich at the diner because she gets kidnapped. And then second, she tries to be like, oh, hey, can we stop somewhere to eat? And he's like, no, because the last time we stopped at the gas station, you know, you tried to escape. So nice try, bitch. We're just going to both go hungry. And then the third time when she's like eyeing the, the registration guy's sandwich and Frank's like, oh, she's always hungry. What the Eat! No shit! Oh my god. And then we get this fucking line where she's like, oh, tell me your story. Because you said you would do it earlier and I've we've got time. The only thing I have against you is that egg salad sandwich. Oh, That's all the, the threats of violence. The forced kiss. But oh, don't worry, guys. She's into it. Ah! <laughs> what? Because ah! 
Sixties, nineteen fifties. So he finally oh, he, explains his deal. He and was, he finally feeds her because he ends up like pulling out of his like from under his jacket a thermos and some sandwiches. I think the implication is he stole them from the registration guy when he wasn't looking because he was like, oh well, maybe we can mail this canteen back to him, this thermos back to him. I am. Wait, did they say that? I he, have. He he held it. He held the thermos and he was like. Maybe we can mail it back to him. So I presume the implication was that he stole it from the registration guy. Damn, that is some Skyrim pickpocketing shit. I don't know where else he could have gotten it from. Cause yeah, I don't, like, where was he holding that? Where, how did he get that? We don't see it. Or did he already have that? Or I wonder if he did that thing. Cause don't some jackets have like little interior pockets that aren't visible from the outside. So that might've been what he done. He just like slipped it into an interior pocket of his jacket. When he, he finally feeds her. And as he's feeding her and they're kind of, you know, being flirty again. Cause it's like, why don't you come into my parlor? And he explains that, you know, yes, like that truck dude died in the beginning of the movie, but it wasn't him deliberately forcing him off the road. It was an accident. And also... What it was is that he was tr- he was working by himself as a truck driver and someone else with a fleet of trucks did not like him, did not take to him. So apparently he had one of his truck goons fucking try to force Frank off the road but in- and in... Trying to defend himself, Frank ran off the other truck off the road, but in doing so, a bystander, another trucker, saw what happened and flipped out and was like, Ah, oh, it's murder! Ugh. It doesn't matter that we started it. Ugh. <laughs> and, and I guess this truck, this like truck warlord owns like a good chunk of the town. Like the implication is that he only went after Frank because he didn't like any competition in like his trucking empire. It's like, yes, because a single guy who saved up some money after coming back from the war was totally going to be like coming after your fucking jobs, all your jobs, taking all your money, taking Blah. all your profits. Like, I don't know if they were trying to imply some sort of organized crime angle or what. I wish they could have explained that a bit more, that we could have gotten more into that. Because this is all, like, off screen. At least when it came to, like, the crime that the highway dragnet guy was getting pinned on. Some of that stuff we actually saw on screen. Like, oh, we actually, you know, had a scene with the person that he allegedly murdered. You know, as opposed to invisible person in exploding truck. Right. So after that, Arando shows up and is like... Hey, you guys, didn't you know? Cops show up around here. It's the groundskeeper. It's like a groundskeeper with a very cartoonish mustache. Handlebar mustaches are pretty. <laughs> but like, but he's like, oh yeah, like the cops are probably gonna skulk around here looking for that uh, mysterious, you know, runaway murderer guy because this is a popular lover's lane. And Frank automatically assumes that like this was Connie's plan, that she somehow knew that the cops were going to come looking in that area. Like he automatically blames her and acts like she knew that it wasn't as secret of a spot as she made it out to be, which I didn't really get that vibe. Because she's starting to be like, oh, Frank, you're, oh yeah, we forgot to, I forgot to mention that she's like, oh, Frank, you're, if you're innocent, no jury in the world's gonna convict you. This bitch has no class consciousness at all. (laughs) Because, because he was like, oh, well, that's assuming I even went as far as a jury, you know, who knows if that local, if all the local townspeople weren't just going to like kick up a posse and like come lynch me or whatever. And she's all like, oh, but you know, now it's been a few days, so I'm sure they've cooled down by now. It's blown over. No, if anything, it's gotten worse because now he's a wanted criminal on the lam. He has assaulted somebody in a diner. I didn't like Bob the incel, but technically, you know, like they are not going to consider that self-defense. Right! And she's kidnapped someone, and like, I know that, yeah, she'd probably, now that she's freaking caught the 1950s love interest disease, she's gotta stick up for him no matter what. (laughs) But I don't know if that's gonna be enough if this fucking truck warlord guy is so powerful that he thought he could just murder a a small businessman in cold blood. Cold blood? It sounded like I was saying curdled blood. Cold blood. Cold blood. So he's all pissy. So they leave the abandoned house and on the way to from leaving there, Connie opens the gate and she tries to run away when Frank tries to drive the car through the gate. And this is where we get that moment where, oh, if you try that again, I'm going to break your arm. And it's like, oh God, this is a... 
this is a love like, story it, it for feel, the ages. It feels like that's what they were trying to use as, like, the second act breakup. But, like, second act breakups only work if you fully convinced me that they were on the path to, like, you know, falling in love for surezies beforehand. Which, no! It, this is a very, like, start and stop, start and stop, start and stop kind of, like, dynamic they've got going on. And then after they got kind of shooed away from the little lover's lane squatter area, they end up taking the car in for a pit check because all the cars need one before the race the next day. And they're trying to figure out where to stay because it's like, well, they, they don't have the little squatting spot at Lover's Lane. They don't have the car to sleep in. So they're trying to figure things out when who should pull up but an acquaintance of Connie's named Sally Phillips, who's another woman driver that got screwed over by the last minute sexist exclusion. And she offers, oh, hey, I can give you guys a lift to a party at my place. All of us lady drivers are having a party to spite the guys who decided we aren't allowed to race here. And Frank's like, no, 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 no. Especially, like, he starts to kind of at least be like, okay, well, maybe we can stop by for a little bit until we find out Sally's dad is one of the cops involved in the manhunt. I didn't hear that part. Yeah, because that's why, like, because at first you think that, like, because, you know, Connie's trying to be like, oh, come on, you know, it's not like we've got anything better to do. And he's like, oh, a little. But then as soon as Sally's like, oh, you know, and plus, you know, like, my dad's not going to be, you know, like, around to be a party pooper because he's too busy with the manhunt. At which point Frank's like, nope, 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 nope. And Connie has to, like, go along and be like, oh, sorry, I guess, yeah, I won't be able to party. Oh, we have an appointment somewhere. Or actually, we do have a place to stay that we completely forgot about until just now. Totally not suspicious. Don't mind us. Oh, you want to join the manhunt? Nope, nope, we're good, we're fine. You guys are no fun. No partying, no manhunting. And she was like, I didn't think so. Like, dun, dun, dun. Like, she... But that doesn't lead to anywhere because then she never comes back. No. So that was a plot thread that was a little pointless other than to rack up tension artificially. So then they're like just walking along and she's like, can we please just, I will sleep on a hill. Fucking pull me into the bushes on a hill with a nice enough incline and I will sleep on a hill. Which I don't blame her. The bitch is fucking walking around in heels. Yeah. And he's like dragging her along by the wrist and she's like a child. And she is just increasing ragged. It's like, she's me at the airport after I've thrown up several times on a plane. She's just like, (laughs) just like. They have to scramble to the side of the road when a cop car shows up and she's like, Uh, let's just let's just keep laying here this is a good spot and he's all like ugh women and like keeps dragging her along and then finally they come upon a shack that I guess he had spotted previously that he kind of kept in the back of his head as like potential backup spot to squat in and he carries her over the threshold Uh, you know she wouldn't have to be carried into the building if you if you hadn't like been dragging her along poor fucking girl oh my god who knows how long they walked in heels and then there's more kissing and she's all like go to go to the law you can totally trust the corrupt system and he's all like no you know like and forces another kiss on her and at this point though what the fuck happened because they were arguing and then all of a sudden they were like Oh, loving embrace. Oh, honey. Oh, yes. And it fades to black. And it's like... They're basically doing that thing of like, oh, all interpersonal tension can be turned into sexual tension. And it's like, no, not all tension can lead to sexual tension. Like, this is the kind of shit that makes people hate the enemies to lovers trope. But I mean, like, it's not a trope that's inherently bad. It's just so many people do it badly that it makes people distrust it whenever it pops up. I don't blame them because this was a terrible fucking instance of enemies to lovers oh oh frank oh i'm totally head over heels in love with you it's like bitch you got a bad case of stockholm syndrome shit girl what happened to the feisty lady who was chucking the key and chucking the matches trying to escape what happened to that version of Connie, damn it? She's too sleepy. <laughs> She's too sleepy to be a strong, independent woman, apparently. So when you don't get enough sleep, you're just going to submit to this motherfucker threatening you with a gun and threatening to break your arm? 
I mean, ah, Liddy! I mean, technically, a common cult tactic is sleep deprivation. I'm sorry, what? Like, in general, it's easier to control people when they're sleep deprived. That is a that is an objective scientific fact. Well, damn it. Well, I mean, they did only sleep in a car, and he's walking around. Who knows how much walking they did? So, and I doubt. Like, and she's probably not that well fed either. She she's literally operating on a single sandwich and whatever the heck and was in that thermos. A little bit of coffee. Yeah, I'm I guess assuming. coffee. We don't even know if that shack has a bathroom. It probably doesn't they probably just had to shit in the corner <laughs> and he ends up the next morning because you know she's still like oh don't run away to mexico after the race and he's like yes i'm going to do that please you know maybe come with me or meet up with me later on and she's like no you should turn yourself in it's totally gonna go well oh honey it's like no offense i'm kind of rooting for him to get freaking snap okay it's like if he wasn't acting like such an ass, it's like, he makes the guy from Highway Dragnet look fucking like Prince Charming. Right? Like, if anything, I wish Connie had been in Highway Dragnet. She would have known what's up! Like, because at least then, you know, it's like, would have been a bit more of a back and forth, would have been a bit more of like, you know, not just shrugging and going along with it, because, oh, well, he's handsome, you know, and don't I have the assets? But... <laughs> But so cut to the next morning and he locks her in the shed because he's like, I know that you want me to turn myself in. Not going to do that. And if you don't want to come to Mexico with me, I don't want to risk you, you know, trying to turn me in for my own good or whatever. So locking you in the shed. Don't worry. I'll tell them where you are. And she's like crying for help and no one hears her at first. He goes off to the races. And this is where he's just basically going to be in the race for the rest of the film. Later, okay. Also, I don't get this part. I okay, I sort of get it because it's going to attract more attention than not doing it. But she tries to set the fucking shack on fire. Yeah, like she takes. What if no one comes along to save your fucking ass right? before the house, before the shack burns down? Also, is the implication that she just literally has two of everything on her person because she had a second ignition key and apparently she had a second pack of matches because like she takes some of her like spare clothes, like I guess her jacket and like, was there a blanket? I couldn't tell. Like, No, was... there was just random newspapers. Yeah, it's like. In the shack. They're, Why they're, is there random newspapers in the shack? Maybe it was a hoarder shack. There wasn't enough stuff in there to, for it to be a hoarder shack. Maybe there used to be a dog in there that wasn't potty trained. <laughs> maybe, I guess that's the explanation we're going to have to go with. Maybe, maybe there was a mouse with a nest and that poor mouse lost everything. Oh no! But yeah, she like sets it up against the door because at first you're thinking, oh, maybe she's going to like only set fire enough to it to like kick the door open. But no, like she doesn't end up kicking the door open. Some random guy finds her and opens it up and she's like, hey, cool, thanks. Take me to the nearest phone. And at which point she calls the cops and is all like, hey, so um, Frank Webster is driver number 55 in the race, but actually he's innocent, I swear, uwu. <laughs> Which, yes. Oh, yes, honey. He, you say he's innocent? We're totally gonna take that at face value. I was about to say, it's like... Because <laughs> it's your word versus all the people in Truck Warlord's town that are already set against Frank. It's your word against... Wilma and Ned. Was it Ned or Ed? Wilma and Incel Guy. Assuming he Wilma ever... and Bob. Bob. Okay. Where did Ed come from? I don't know. <laughs> Wilma and Bob and assuming Honey. He, assuming he ever wakes up. Because that concussion's kept him out for like a the while. The entire film. Basically, he wakes up long enough to say, Jag. Jag. And then, yeah, nothing out of this boy. So, for all we know, he's got permanent brain damage going on. But yeah, sure, honey, you telling the police that he's innocent, yeah, that's going to go over super well. Like, unless she's actually going to, like, pay for a decent lawyer, because they don't ever make it clear, but I presume she's got to have some money if she can afford a sports car. If she can 
afford a Jaguar. Like, I don't know if those were cheaper back in the day, but I know that even today they're considered kind of luxury cars. So I can imagine back then it's even more so. It's like, I guess she could afford a lawyer. But she never says that. She never says, oh, I could put up the money for your defense. She says that, oh, we can get a lawyer, but she doesn't say that I can put up the money for a lawyer. It's like, oh, I can afford the best lawyer for you. Like, she just assumes, oh, any lawyer lawyer will do. It's not like the truck warlord is going to have, like, the best lawyer in town or whatever. But so, anywho, though, after that, she... The race starts, and the race has already started, and it's basically neck and neck with Faber and... Frank. And honestly, and granted, like, I'm not, just because I'm not a car person doesn't mean I can't find a racing scene compelling. And I get that, that there are certain things that are just hard to do on a low budget and filming like a car drive, a car racing scene is probably one of them, but also it's black and white. So aside from the white Jaguar, I cannot tell any of the other cars apart. <laughs> Same. I have no clue what's going on in the race for the most part, except for Frank and Faber being neck to neck. That's yeah, the because, only thing I could really tell. Yeah, because There's Fab a couple of times where a driver has to turn around or something and they get ran off the road. And I think there is at one point, like a pile up a little bit of cars in the back. But just a little bit because you could tell they don't have the budget for like, they already blew up one truck and I guess they don't have enough left in the budget to blow up anything else. And it's basically Faber has taken it upon himself to be like, oh, I know you don't belong here and I'm going to prove it when I beat you in the race. And it's like, again, it's too late to have this whole preppy asshole versus rugged working class man angle when the working class man has been a dick for most of the film. And like, only now are you making Faber more judgy when... When you first introduced him, he seemed relatively reasonable. Because, yeah, Faber's like, oh, how'd you guys meet? Where are you guys? And... Like, he's but... just asking reasonable questions because he clearly knows Connie, but he doesn't know this other guy. So it's like, who's this other guy who randomly showed up? Like... They never really give a good answer. Because Frank so... is not a very persuasive guy. He just, like, is cagey and basically just tries to walk out of most scenarios as soon as the questions start getting thrown around. So, Connie... Ends gets up. to the race. She meets up with a, another racing buddy. We've never seen this one before. Named Harrison. And I guess either his car didn't pass the, the pit check to muster or his car broke down partway through the race and he had to double back to get it repaired. But either way, he knows he's SOL as far as like making any headway on the race is concerned. So she's like, hey, can I borrow your car? And he's like, but there aren't any women drivers allowed in the race. And she was like, don't worry, I'll take the highway. And it's like, girl, you are already like, you know, operating outside of the law by like, I know they're trying to frame her as like the good lawful girl by like, oh, turn yourself in. It's like, you've been collaborating with a fugitive for a long enough time that girl, just bend some rules. I think it would have been nice if she had like proven herself as a capable racer by being like, fuck it, jumping into the car and catching up to them via the racetrack. But they can't even give her that like moment of glory. She has to take the highway, which I guess is like a shortcut. So after that, um, the cops try to set up like a barricade, a, a flimsy ass barricade, which, you know, on the racetrack, because I guess at this point, it's only Faber and Frank left. And Frank just, you know, plows through it because of course, which I guess is where we get the bit from the poster. It's like, yeah, we do uh, know. We one didn't thing. see the lady from the poster. I'm pretty sure that's Dorothy Malone. I, I think that's she, just no. the lady on the poster had like a cut in her skirt. And it, 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 I mean, I, as far as I know, I don't think Connie had that same cut in her skirt. Unless that was supposed to be the other lady. What was other lady? Oh, the, yeah. The, the one... Um, we didn't see her. Like, we didn't see her, like... Sally. If, was that supposed to be Sally? Or was that just supposed to be another random pretty woman? Or was that, like, supposed to be... Was that, like, an alternate picture of Dorothy Malone that the poster guy just traced from, like, a different thing she did? Let's not accuse them of tracing. Okay. <laughs> My apologies. Accuse them. We don't know if it's a guy or a girl. But, yeah, it's like, I'm not trying to accuse dead artists of tracing. Between. Yeah, it's like, considering it's the 1950s, less Probably likely not. to be somebody... In I know, but, like, but... but yeah, not... Not trying to accuse a dead poster artist of tracing, but I wonder if they literally just, like, took that, like, outfit from, like, a different picture of Dorothy Malone, the actress that played Connie. Right. That, that makes the most sense to me, but, like, 
So after Frank plows through the barricade, Faber pulls over to the cops like, what's the deal? That car number 55 is Frank Webster. So then Faber's like, oh boy, I get to do a citizen's arrest in my car, vroom vroom. Chases after Frank, and I think after that point, we were kind of fuzzy on just what happened. Like so the basically, exact, like, coordination of how the car accident happens. But basically, Faber, it's trying to parallel the opening bit with the truck where Faber ends up off the road, but this time, Frank, you know, he could just, like, he has a clear shot, he could just drive straight through the finish line into Mexico and get away, but he ends up pulling over and helping Faber, except I feel like that heroic sacrifice was undercut by the fact that Faber seemed mostly fine, like, yeah, he's unconscious, but, like, I thought they were at least gonna have it where, oh, he pulls Faber out of the car wreck. The car is, like, on fire or something. But it's not even, is it even smoking? It's smoking, yeah. But it's not on fire. It would have it would have been easy to have it where he pulls him out and as soon he like drags him a little away and then the car explodes and so we have a moment of being like oh no like oh if he hadn't you know stopped to save favor favor would have died a horrible fiery death but no and it also like he just keeps like manhandling him and Faber's just flopping around in the like a ragdoll and as he's unconscious <laughs> I'm like I'm just like dude keep him still what if he's got a neck injury. <laughs> He's just like flopping him, just shaking him around. Like you're gonna fuck this boy up if you keep treating him like a rag doll. Shit, Frank. He he he's rough with men and women equally, I guess. Equal opportunity roughhouser. Yeah. But yeah, and so then. Connie shows up and it's like, see, I knew you were good because you rescued Faber. And you didn't drive on. So does this mean you're going to turn yourself into the cops and trust in the system, even despite all the evidence that the system's got to fuck you over? Sure thing am, doll. I guess I'm just getting used to you. And then they like kiss and that's the end. So we don't even get confirmation of, oh yeah, he did end up fine. Like the court did end up acquitting him. For all we know, he still got the book thrown at him. Yeah. But that's up to our imaginations, which we totally know the book got thrown at this boy. Because how often is there justice in our legal system? I mean, or best case scenario, maybe he got a lighter sentence because Connie paid for good legal representation. Right. Again, much like Highway Dragnet, I don't expect the main guy to get off completely scot-free. I think he's going to serve a longer term than Highway Dragnet guy would have. Like, I think he's going to at least, you know, like have some jail time. But but yeah, now the movie's over, and as far as where it falls on the trash spectrum, as far as whether we would consider it good trash, bad trash, non-trash, or anti-trash, you can tell me if your opinion is different, babe, but I'm gonna say it. I For me, this is the first instance of bad trash. Bad trash. I wanted to say that too, because I, but I was waiting to see what you said. But it was like, yeah, no, I am not really particularly can't wait to watch this film again. It's like, I could... I could rewatch Highway Dragnet. I could wa- rewatch Ocean from the Monster Floor. I could rewatch Ocean, The Gunfighter. O- Ocean from the Monster Floor. Okay, what would a monster floor entail? The floor is lava, except it's except instead of lava, it's like the floor is monsters. I was thinking of a dance floor. Monster Mash. <laughs> is, is the dance floor still a monster? Like, does it just have a stomping fetish? Like, oh, yeah. Yes. Stomp on me harder. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like, it, this love story is so bad that, like, it's not even funny. It's just cringe. Oh, God. There was so many times where Sabs and I are just looking at each other like, did that actually just fucking happen? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Forceful kisses are not fun. Like, yeah, those forceful kisses just really killed the vibe for me. And I wonder if that was, you know, Ireland's idea. It's hard to tell. It's the 1950s. Unfortunately, this wouldn't have necessarily stuck out too much. But yeah, the one good thing that came out of this movie, possibly more than one good thing, you know, like I haven't seen any of the like Fast and Furious films, the modern Fast and Furious films. I mean, the bar is in hell though, so hopefully they are better than this. Maybe one of these days if we get a Patreon, we'll uh, find out directly. Oh no! 
<laughs> but, you know, we'll see. But one of the good things that came out of this, you know, obviously, you know, the three deal picture with, with American International Pictures, which gave Corman the opportunity to make more movies and hopefully better movies. Well, I know better movies. I know there are better movies to come, particularly once we get to the Poe era. So, but we've, we've still got a ways to go from that. How many movies do we la- have left in this decade? Oh, a lot. We, we, we have a lot. Because I think I remember you showing me, it was like, he's making eight films per year, ten later, and it's like, oh my god! This boy is just mad for the B-film. Indeed. But as far as, like, another good thing that came out of this, so he had his taste of second unit directing, and Corman decided, you know what? I want to do the real deal. I want to direct my own picture for once. Not just produce. Not just second unit direct. I want to direct my own film. So as practice, he had a buddy of his write up a five-page script for a short, which Corman shot in a day as like practice. And they, you know, never ended up developing the footage. So as far as I'm aware, that film is considered lost to the ether, unfortunately. But, you know, they still considered it, you know, time well spent because it gave him practice for what would end up being his directorial debut, which we will cover next time, Five Guns West. So stay tuned. Goodbye. Bye-bye. The Corman Catacombs is a production by Sabrina Stan and Robin Troy. Our podcast art and spooky tunes are by our good friend Elias. You can check out his artwork on Instagram at Don't Mind If I Doodle and Twitter at Don't Mind If I Do Too. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Corman Catacombs. Be sure to subscribe and stay tuned as we journey further into the depths. Be sure to rate and review us. If you give us a five-star review, we may even read it on a future episode of the podcast and be sure to follow our social medias you can find us on tumblr twitter and instagram at corman catacombs if you would like to support us you can make a one-time donation on our ko-fi or you can share this podcast with a friend and just be sure not to stray too far or you'll be lost in the catacombs forever